Welcome to Pod Bless Canada, the McDonald Laurie Institute's premier public policy podcast. My name is Brett Byers, and I'm the communications manager at MLI. This episode of Pod Bless Canada features a conversation between MLI Research Advisory Board member Professor Elliot Tepper and Dr. Andrew Laidley, an academic from New Zealand with deep practical and field knowledge related to global conflict mediation. Dr. Ladley and Professor Tepper discussed the past, present, and future of the field of mediation, citing historical examples of its practical application towards meaningful conflict resolution. We hope you enjoy their full and informative conversation. Andrew, it's such a pleasure to have you here in Ottawa. I know you are taking time out from your other activities to do this with MLI, and I'm sure we all appreciate it. Perhaps the first question is, what is an international mediator? What can a mediator do? In broad terms, mediators try to help parties to reach agreement. In practical terms, a huge amount of that works on trying to find and identify in any conflict situation who are the decision makers who you're going to have to meet, build trust with, and prepare for some possibility that they could have discussions about reaching an agreement to settle a conflict. So basically, mediators are builders rather than just what happens at a table. It's getting people to conceive of the concept of a table, getting people to think about the possibility, uh, if they wish to, that there may be alternatives to violence, getting people to envisage what will happen in a settlement if they ever reach one and how it would be implemented. So it's not just a notion of assume a table. It's actually a, a big construction process that you try to find people who are willing to contemplate a table as well as prepare them for what might happen in a discussion. You've had an extraordinary career, an extraordinary array of issues around the world of what I think can accurately be called intractable, endemic conflicts. There seems to be no way out, and you then show up in the middle of them, and you've had experience geographically, as well as in terms of types, causes of conflict. Have you seen the field change since you entered it? Well, one needs to distinguish between in time periods, between periods where the nature of the parties and the nature of the conflicts were such that they looked as if they could be amenable. Let me give you a brief example. After the end of the Cold War, a number of conflicts were being propped up by the principal players in the Cold War. Mm. And shortly after that, in 1990, there were a number of issues that without the props, you could suddenly work with the parties, mainly the UN, but other international players. And they could agree, let's settle this because they couldn't carry on fighting because their principal supporting players had been removed. And so you get a settlement in Namibia, which looked to be intractable at one point, in Cambodia, which looked as if it had got locked into a long-term civil war, which nobody could win, and a number in Latin America, and a number of other places. So big suggestion of enthusiasm that the UN could help solve the problems in internal but internationalized conflicts. As uh, time moved on after the end of the Cold War, so the nature of the conflicts has, I think, changed. There's a lot of discussion of this. They're no longer reasonably clear political conflicts. They've become what I call complex conflicts. And I think the field has changed because there's no easy solutions to those. They're very complex conflicts. They involve organized crime. They involve multiple international players. They involve 
not simple uh, kind of battle lines because they're internal wars. They involve deep sovereignty questions because sometimes they're separatists, sometimes they're political, sometimes they're criminal, sometimes they're mixes of all of those. So the kind of role that an international body can play has to change because it's having to delve into a country. And that's why there's been an emergence sort of underneath the international field of a number of players of which the group that I was working for and, and no longer am called the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue. And there's a number of others, the Carter Center in America, and a number of other humanitarian organizations that have started playing these roles like Interpeace or Swiss Peace, looking to try to connect with parties and try to prepare them for the possibility of a peaceful outcome in a complex conflict. So I think the field has changed because the nature of conflicts changed. So the nature of the solutions and the search for them has to change with it. Your tools, have they changed? Have they evolved? How you approach a conflict, given that the nature of conflict has changed? How has your approach changed? Yes, the tools have changed quite dramatically, I think. It's all, in the end, it's, you might say it's down to the same thing, that you have to meet people and you have to talk with people. So in the end, that simplicity is there. But you have to be able to look for the key factors uh, that are behind the conflict now and behind any particular situation. What's changed is that the political economy of conflict has changed, and that requires a whole new set of ingredients. Could you expand on that, please? That sounds interesting. Uh, yes, it is interesting. A simple example, we think of the Taliban governing Afghanistan having emerged out of this chaos after the fall of, uh, of the Russian-backed government and after that whole period. And then the Taliban being overthrown by the U.S. forces post 9-11, and the Taliban uh, were never defeated in the sense that they were completely crushed. They were simply driven from office. So they regrouped in, um, uh, in Pakistan. And, and the Taliban then started a, a series of guerrilla wars in which mm. attacked the international forces and the internationally backed government that was then uh, elected and, and ruling and, uh, and trying to administer Afghanistan. So, and as you know, Canada was deeply engaged at that point. Canada deeply involved. New Zealand, as tends to be New Zealand's case, somewhat more humbly involved, but nevertheless yeah. had an entire province in which it was, uh, or an area that it was uh, also assisting with, but not quite as involved in the combat areas as Canada and a number of other places were. So that looks to be a uh, problem where you've got a political group that's militarized that's out the country. In fact, the underlying political economy is really what's shaping that whole conflict. Mm -hmm. And the Taliban moved from trying to ban opium production at one point, quite successfully actually, when you track the international production of opium at one point, and they hoped that they would get some kind of dividend back from that from the international community. The international community didn't bother. Taliban then moved into backing opium production big time, and the United Nations Organization on Drugs and Crime estimates the Taliban controls about 90% of the world's heroin. 90%. So heroin is backing the Taliban, the political economy of, uh, of trying to reach a settlement now is not just about reaching a political settlement. It's about what are you going to do about opium and about this massive amount of money that's flowing into the Taliban's coffers and into uh, their capacity to support a war indefinitely. Whereas the government of Afghanistan, of course, is being entirely propped up by the international community. So take the interna international community out, the, the government would collapse. Take the international community out, the Taliban 
would flourish because it's massively well-funded. Yes. But it's funded via, via the production of opium and heroin, which the areas that it controls, turns out that Afghanistan has a spectacular climate for, and for soil for, for growing you know, good-strength opium, and the Taliban have gotten control of it. So you can't settle by an ordinary mediation of saying, let's exchange apples for oranges, or let's give you so many positions of power without taking account of the political economy of Afghanistan. I'm not saying that, that HD or anyone else is trying to settle. I'm just saying as an abstract matter, you can't settle that conflict between its conflict players without a political economy analysis. So the tools have changed that a mediator can't anymore assume parties at a table and what are we going to do with it in this sort of classic sense of getting to yes. They have to assume a very complex conflict. They have to assume very complex psychology. People you're dealing with have got a set of views of the world which are shaped by where they've come from. And unless you can get into that, you cannot possibly help them to get to agreement. So in my view, at least, uh, this field has become a very complex field on its own of reaching across all disciplines, history, economics, psychology, as well as the yeah. basics of how you're going to help them to reach an agreement, which is about a supposedly a functioning economy and functioning state. So you have to help the parties to anticipate that not only do they sign something, mm -hmm. but they're actually building a future. So that future has to work. Right. In Yemen, they reached an agreement to build a future which was completely unworkable, which was they'd never done federalism. They agreed to a federal, federal system with mm -hmm. six federal states. And, and of course, one of the principal players didn't agree. And Yemen is still at war uh, as a result. And its economy is completely collapsed. So essentially, <clears throat> conflict has gotten more complex. And therefore, the tools to deal with how do you get to yes has also become more complex. Is it still doable? We've reached a point where conflict is so complex that it's qualitatively different than we've had to deal with in the past. And are we then going to find ourselves where our tools are just not adequate? Yes, I think we are. In the past, if you could dominate the conflict, you could broadly then dominate the settlement process with sufficient force that you could invite the key players who you're going to eventually leave to run their own place to reach an agreement as to how to govern. And you could provide a framework that you could, for want of a better word, hold them at a table. And, uh, and it was in the interest to stay there because then the international forces. In my view, at least now, the, to the extent that any outside intervener wishes to intervene, it's necessary to understand that there may be massive limits to what you can achieve. And the formula that the UN brought to settle in the agenda for peace post-Cold War was a formula of a functioning democratic liberal rule of law market economy state. Right. And if you go in thinking that that's all you can achieve, then it's, it's likely to be unachievable given the complexity of the conflict, given the inability of a mediator to do anything other than by consent, unless they've got force. And unless you're prepared to come in and, and impose, you have to deal with the reality of the forces that are there. Any intervener does. And that may require a gradualized process, not the big peace settlement that the UN has been looking for. My view is that the people who are operating in this field have to therefore look for much more flexible step-by-step -step processes, which may envisage le much less than ideal situations, which are leaving the parties to try to work out their constitutional framework, hopefully with less force. 
that's a very different agenda to what broadly is the expectation of what the UN should achieve when it intervenes, and indeed what mediators could do. The term liberal peace, perhaps what has been assigned to the UN approach, I think you've assigned it, perhaps that's your phrase. So there's a package. And your comment here is that that package now in our current environment needs to be, um, I don't think you'd suggest jettisoning it, throwing it out, because the goal is there of, perhaps you can describe once again, what's the content of a, of a UN traditional liberal package, liberal peace package. But is there a way to describe what you're suggesting? Which, how could I put it? It sounds very Canadian. Let's be more modest, break it down into smaller parts and achieve what we can achieve. Is there a way to contrast those two approaches more sharply? And can we make more of a model out of it? It's very difficult to give up on the core goals of the liberal peace. And I'm not suggesting one should just abandon those. Those, The content of those ideas, protection of human rights, equality, non-discrimination, protection of gender, the rule of law, separation of powers, constitutional framework, uh, elections, basic package of a modern democratic state you know, mm -hmm. kind of Canada or Denmark, is extremely difficult to simply get parties to agree to, or they may agree to it, but they cannot possibly implement it. Mm -hmm. And not because, you know, in some ways people are um, inferior or anything silly like that, but just because the forces at play there in terms of shaping who gets power, how and what, the basics of, pol of politics and the institutional backing for making decisions work and so on, are at a different point of their development and so on, and, and the parties are in a different way. So it does seem to me that part of the UN's difficulties is not that they should abandon the, the, the core principle of trying to ensure a just outcome in a free society, but then mediation terms, mediators don't uh, and shouldn't try to dictate the outcome. The outcome is dependent upon the parties and their agreement. And in some ways, that's the problem in some ways in terms of that there is a core set of ideas of where this should get to, but the UN can't get there, nor indeed can many of the societies. And how one frames a gradual step-by-step -step approach that leaves the parties to do that and, and leaves them responsible. Everybody accepts that these must be homegrown solutions and it's up to them to reach it. But having said that, the content is more or less expected to be delivered, otherwise the UN shouldn't participate. And uh, and that's the dilemma. What I see is a, is a pragmatic approach where which does accept that the solutions may not be in some kind of idealized ones, but are the party solutions and does accept that that may not look an ideal outcome or an outcome that would get support from a um, in a democratic environment uh, that does have the rule of law and the protection of human rights. And some of these issues are very easy to see if you look at situations where major conflicts have ended without international involvement. For example, I'm not saying that the end of the Sri Lankan civil war was in any way uh, an ideal end. It was dreadful. It was involved massacres and allegations of genocide and mass killings and crimes against humanity as the war was prosecuted so that one side won and defeated the Tamil uh, liberation uh, forces or the liberation tigers. And um, that process didn't produce an ideal UN outcome, but it produced an outcome, a, a stable state and a, new, a government which internationally recognized. Now, it, was there any way that, that the international community could have helped in that or did it have to simply leave the parties uh, to, to achieve it? In fact, uh, a mediator tried very hard to reach mm -hmm. a solution to that. It was Norway. 
and got parties close to being uh, willing to talk mm -hmm. and had a number of options available on the table for them. Uh, but the parties didn't take them at the time and then, the, and then the, the arrangements slipped away and geopolitics changed and the government thought it could win and did uh, and imposed its, its own outcome. For me, the, the lesson there is you know, sometimes the, uh, the international community might not be able to help them to achieve and you have to step back. Other times you might be able to, but the solution may be less than, uh, than a perfect uh, or at least than the liberal peace, but it may at least be less violent. How the international community does that and uh, is, I think, the essence of this field. It requires much more pragmatism and willingness to accept outcomes that the parties agree to. And the evolution of both concept and tools as a result. Yes, exactly. I think conceptually you have to think of this as their problem and their solution. Tool-wise, you have to, I think, people intervene in this field have to be much more pragmatic. And I say that cautiously because nobody wants to abandon core principles of, of justice, freedom, humanity, dignity. But many of these places are going to have to work out how to get those things themselves rather than out of a, an intervention to end the conflict. You've had extraordinary experience around the world and in different types of conflict. Are there other examples you can bring of either, unfortunately, the failure of the liberal package, the liberal peace, and on the other hand, where a more modest approach has actually achieved some results or where you see they could if only they were employed? Well, I think a very interesting example, one that I, I was involved with, and, and so was the UN in a way, and so were outside interveners, was the internal conflict that happened post-elections in Kenya in 2007 and 8. In that early period, uh, 10 years ago now, what happened is basically a contested election and in which parties started attacking each other. And that took on a tribal dimension in the, um, mm -hmm. in the highlands of, uh, and the Rift Valley of Kenya. And within a week, maybe a bit more, some six, 700,000 people were chased from their homes. Although the casualties were low in terms of global conflicts, somewhere between one and 2,000 people killed, most of them shot by the police. In fact, there was a massive amount of trauma that was caused mm. for the populations that I were I don't attacked. think we should discount the trauma of a couple thousand people, even though, unfortunately, no, we have, unfortunately, we have much greater uh, numbers involved elsewhere, but that's still for the people involved, is trauma. No, true, exactly. And in a global sense, one might say, is that really a conflict? Mm. You know, and some of the examples that we used are, uh, in terms of people who assemble these things are, you know, conflicts which kill more than a certain amount each year, which is the, their threshold that they use for it. I'm saying, so therefore, this wasn't Syria. But this was a huge conflict in, in Kenyan terms and just saw suddenly tourism disappearing, people leaving and the economy collapsing. Now, there's a, a big question. What's, is there any role for outsiders to say, look, can we help? And initially the AU came in and initially the Kenyans said, we've got this, thanks, we can, we can push this out. And then uh, Kofi Annan came in mm. and, uh, and was accepted by both sides of trying to help them to reach agreement. Now, we know that an agreement was reached to share power and to produce a new constitution over the next four or five years. So that wasn't an agreement to try and reach a constitution quickly. It was an agreement to share power and to say, let's take a time and let's try and ensure that the next elections are going to be peaceful. Well, sitting underneath that was 
was the issue that these two tribes, in particular the Kikuyu and the Kalenjin in the Rift Valley, had attacked each other on the ground. Mm -hmm. And it's there that the bulk of the 600,000 people were chased from their homes. So underneath that was the question of could these tribes get back together and say, look, let's not do that in the future. So a mediator sat with a uh, supporting the, the National Commission on Reconciliation, I think it was called, and uh, which was set up as part of the package of the internationally mediated Kenyan agreed solution and worked with the parties to say how we're going to get agreement not to hmm. not fight again. So next time we have an election dispute and the party and the politicians say we dispute that, our own people say, but we're not going to fight because look at what it did. Hmm. And that process produced a remarkable agreement called the Nakuru County Peace Accord, which is Googleable in which the parties said, we really hurt each other. The tribal elders said, we don't want to do that again. And next time, let's not do it. And that agreement has held. There's been no substantive tribal violence since then. It might not hold forever, but it's a classic example of something below the radar, below the, below the big picture things. And that was very largely mediated by outsiders who provided a structure where they talked and talked and talked until finally said, actually, here's what I think you've said. And do you agree? And they did. And they signed it. In fact, uh, one of its successes is that these two parties, which the agreement had nothing to do with party politics, it was a tribal agreement not to fight. Mm. But in fact, leaders, political leaders from those two parties stood together in the uh, in the election and, and won. Now, both of those political leaders faced uh, charges uh, and Later, in the yeah. International Criminal Court mm-hmm. of Crimes Against uh, Humanity, etc. And both of them, in the end, uh, for complex set of reasons, uh, the charges not proceed and were acquitted. But it was an interesting spin-off that the tribes, having decided not to fight, mm-hmm. in fact, the political leaders decided to stand together. Now, for me, that's an interesting illustration. It's not a big-picture settlement. Mm-hmm. Uh, the big picture left the Kenyans to get on and change their constitution. They've held a couple of elections. They've had a big tensions about whether violence would emerge again, essentially because of people not trusting the electoral process, but the tribes have not fought. And we've yet to see that being tested, but it's a nice example. So there may be examples that we done. Modest, let's not fight. Let's see what we can do. Let's build things that we can work towards. And there, may, there are always things that can be done, but one has to pitch them at the level where you can reach agreement on a practical matter that the parties are going to want to do. Because if it only can survive because of outside people holding it up, then it's going to be like all those governments in the Cold War. As soon as you take out the props, they'll go. As soon as you take out the international community from Afghanistan, the Afghanistan government will fall. Everybody knows that. It's not controversial. And the same thing with all the various parties that are supporting other conflicts. If you take them out, you'll reach different outcomes. And that's going to be one of the keys is to try and work out is who's behind the conflicts and can you get, mm-hmm. in some ways, can you get processes that involve them? Well, that's fascinating. You have the beginnings of a model there. What you've just articulated begins to move toward policy advice. Uh, you've given some don't expect this, do expect that. The MLI is a policy-oriented think tank, and you're sitting in our national capital. And Canada, as you know, has played a constructive role in a variety of ways and sees itself as being a helpful fixer around the world. 
that gets debated inside Canada, sometimes at election times. But we do have some tools historically. We've seen around the world in terms of peacekeeping and humanitarian relief and acceptance of refugees. And the um, Global Magnitsky Act gives us some additional tools. And we did have the Landmines Treaty, which justifiably got a Nobel Peace Prize. So it's not as if we haven't the willingness to engage. Are there a set of principles or what can you leave behind what advice can you give? Here we are in the Capitol, by the way, nearing an election. Uh, what advice can you leave behind for us based on your vast experience? And before you go back to New Zealand, in what way can Canada or other countries like Canada, because one of our roles is to be a like-minded state. So we are like-minded with other states such as Norway and Sweden and uh, Australia and New Zealand. In terms of standing for certain principles in the world and a stance in the world, are there some policy advices you can give to us looking forward to the types of disputes we're likely to be facing in the world we now live in? Well, one should be humble about offering advice, of course. But Maybe from, that's, the, maybe but that's from, it, be humble. Yeah, but from my own uh, perspective, one of the things that I think shapes a, a genuine humility of anyone looking at these conflicts is the need to really understand them properly. And by that, I mean a really good political economy analysis of what one's dealing with, because the issues are not uh, the political issues, which are obvious. The issues are not those necessarily. And once a, an, an analytical tool is brought to this to understanding it, it may well be that the kind of things that one's suggesting change as a result. Mm. And um, the example of uh, that often is used in relation to the Taliban, the one in uh, organized crime, many now problematic places have got organized crime behind that. Mm. And that requires, I think, an analysis of those issues and about where the money's going from. You know, the follow the money thing. Mm. I mean, you mentioned the Global Magnitsky Act. Uh, it's a good example, I think. There, There is this massive amount of incentives on parties to keep fueling conflict because uh, they can, because the money is available. So I mm. think there is a kind of follow the money and understand properly the political economy of what mm. we're dealing that I think would be extremely helpful to understanding uh, complex conflicts. And um, that's true in, in Latin America. That's true in the Middle East. You know, the um, part of the, the analysis of all of this Historian, historians look at it and say one of the difficulties that the French faced in Lebanon is that it was the first kind of narco state back in the 1920s mm -hmm. where hashish was being produced in the Bekaa Valley. and They basically had to acknowledge that in order to, to reach agreement with the people who were then at the top of that, that they would govern with them. And mm. by doing so, they reached a compromise based on political economy analysis that people probably wouldn't reach today. But it was actually a realistic agreement and, and a realistic process in that early 20s, I'm just talking about now, 1920s. But I'm not saying necessarily that's a model in terms of the kind of compromise you reach, but at least recognizes that there's a, an element of analysis in there. So my first humble suggestion is that I think it's useful to really look at these things from a much more complicated uh, picture with a political economy analysis that try and work out really where is the money going. And I think there may be international things. The only solution, because so much of this is international, the only solution to this is international agreement to go after the money in the way that you're suggesting. And that does require a much more international cooperation than currently exists, I think. Not just unilateral action, which is very useful, but international. So that's one thing that I think you're looking at some of the fuel of conflicts as well as what you can 
So understanding that better may stop some of the fuel getting into that. There's a lot of, in my view, a lot of breaches of the core principles of the, the UN Charter about the use of force mm -hmm. that people are doing it indirectly and I, uh, by, by funding proxies, uh, basically, or by sending money in or arms in. And I think there's quite a lot of analysis that can be done in that that can produce a much clearer picture of who's doing what, and it may be possible to get international cooperation to address that. In my view, in terms of practical issues that people are dealing with, apart from understanding the conflict better, it is then a matter of looking at something and saying, it, can what we do make a reasonable difference? Words, what is our... What is our theory of change in here? I know that everybody does this. If we do X, then the following things may yeah. happen. And it's a, it's a little bit like repeating a, an obvious story to say that your theory of change must really fit the complexity of what you're dealing with. Because uh, otherwise, it seems to me that it's the usual thing of unintended effects and so on. And in peacekeeping, that's often the case too. What is it really that you're dealing with? And do you are the tools that you're being given appropriate to the kind of conflict that you're being asked to oh, intervene in? interesting. Does that make sense to you? Yes. I, I, I didn't mean to stop the no. set of principles, but uh, I, I, that's a very, uh, what is what do you expect out of the change? What is your change model? Are there others? Well, I think in that regard, by the way, there's the usual thing that one would say is test it and then scale it if it works. In mm -hmm. other words, so that it does seem to me sometimes that it shouldn't be all or nothing. I think at the moment, the part of the problem of the UN process is that you're kind of all in boots for the for, for the big picture or not. Mm -hmm. And it does seem to me that that if one says, look, we will see if we can assist in some of these things, either bilaterally or with like-mindeds, or on a bigger scale in terms of UN or other kind of regional intervention, it may be possible to look and to see if something is going to work. For me, this field is built around getting consent, which means one's got to look at the actors and say, who's consenting, who's an actor, and who can I work with? And it may not be who you think. Mm. You know, it's that is there a party or a player or a country involved that's got better access and better uh, better trust and therefore is, is a better player that instead of you intervening directly, you support them to intervene. And that just requires the kind of analysis. I'll give you a, a simple example. How is it going to be possible to settle South Sudan and indeed uh, Sudan's issues? Those issues are not necessarily solvable by the UN because the parties won't agree. But they may be solvable in other ways if there's other players that have got influence. And what I see from the field is that you have to follow the doors that are openable and oh. you have to build trust with them. A sort of humble approach requires you to work within the limits of consent and, and building it and building trust rather than assuming that the consent can be given to you by the UN because it does all that. So helping the processes, and there's a group of like-mindeds in the mediation field in the UN, helping build those processes, those understandings about the tools that the UN uses, and but also looking for where it's possible to make a difference, where when you push on the door, it's not just being held against you because consent means that you're likely to face less difficulty than if you're trying to right. intervene in a place where there's no consent. Mm. I think what we've just had is an extraordinary lesson in what a conflict mediator does, how a conflict mediator thinks, and what a conflict mediator can accomplish. And I thank you very much for that. I think we've had an extraordinary window into a type of activity that we normally just don't know about. We all know about guns and tanks and bombs, and even something about peacekeeping. But as an approach to dealing with the world we live in, 
Uh, I think this has been extraordinarily valuable based on an extraordinarily valuable career that you yourself have taken part in. So thank you very much. Thank you.